The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. The Tories have shown us that they're willing to go full throttle when it comes to the ideas of the deserved and undeserving. They're doing this with migration, with the, the dismantling of the welfare state as well. You can only petrify half a country about very small boats and tiny numbers of people if you have managed to get the level of fear so very, very high that they can be distracted by something that will never, ever affect them. Hello and welcome to the Verso podcast. I'm Eleanor Penny. If you've taken a look at the British news recently, it probably won't surprise you to hear that all is not well in Albion. This sceptered isle where I'm currently speaking to you from is still one of the world's largest economies. But take a stroll around an average UK town and you'd be forgiven for forgetting that. Wealth isn't so much trickling down as it is gushing into offshore accounts and CEO bonuses. And whilst the ruling party is busy fistfighting over meat taxes, imprisoning refugees and pushing conspiracy theories in the press, living standards are plummeting and inequality has been on the rise for decades. Now the UK is seeing higher infant mortality rates, endemic homelessness, diseases of poverty and mental health conditions, millions of people relying on food banks to feed themselves and over 3 million people facing destitution. So what's the state of this divided nation? How is it experienced differently along lines of race, gender and disability? And what does it tell us about long-standing structural changes in the economy? I asked Chantal Lewis and Danny Doling to give us a guided tour through the geography of inequality in modern Britain. Danny Doling is the Halford Mackinder Professor of Human Geography at the University of Oxford. His books include All That Is Solid, Population 10 Billion, So You Think You Know About Britain, Injustice and Rule Britannia, Brexit and the End of Empire. His most recent title is Shattered Nation, Inequality and the Geography of a Failing State, published by Verso Books. Chantal Lewis is the Andrew Pitt Junior Research Fellow in Black British Studies at Pembroke College, Oxford. She's a public sociologist, a broadcaster, and the co-host of the Surviving Society podcast. She's also the Deputy Director at Leading Roots. Her book, We See Things They'll Never See, co-authored with Jason Arde, is forthcoming with Princeton University Press. We talked about public wealth, regional division and failed states. Chantal, Danny, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, Eleanor. Just to kick off, uh, your book is called Shattered Nation, Danny, and I'm wondering about that framework of shattering. What's that pointing to? It's pointing to things falling apart and, and dividing. It's the structures that somebody of my age grew up in, where schools were provided, we had new hospitals built, we had a sense of common purpose, it wasn't utopia, but we were the second most equal country in Europe, large country after Sweden. Those things have gone, uh, are largely gone, they've gone more than they've gone for any other country in Europe. And it's also the sense that people have about their lives. It's When I began writing the book, I thought I was going to have to make the case for why we were shattered, because there were a group of people who didn't believe we were. Now I can find nobody. You know, people write in the Telegraph about how society is shattered. So, so it is, in a way, just stating the obvious, but also, sadly, it, it is about the reality of our lives and things that, you know, we know we have 174 schools where the roofs might collapse at any moment now, but it's probably double that number, and we don't know by Christmas. The hospitals are having entire wards closed. I mean, it, it's hard to think of a word that fits better than shattered. And I didn't want to pick one that might uh, be too dramatic because we're not a failed state. We're just one that is falling apart at the seams. I want to come back to that idea of failure in a bit. But first, I'm I'm curious about 
how that patterns of those of that shattering, you know, much like in a sort of a structural shattering, right? I mean, we're pointing to the idea of like an infrastructural issue or a structural issue or structural failure all the time. Looking around at what's happening with schools and hospitals and railways and that kind of thing, that's a very, very literal problem. In many instances of shattering generally kind of gives us an idea of where the fault lines always were. Chantelle, could you talk to us a little bit about how the kind of patterns of social breakdown start to reveal older failures? Thanks so much for that, Eleanor. And that was a great introduction to Shattering, Danny. One of the things that I think stands out most about Danny's analysis is the kind of social and psychosocial impact of the shattering. I am going to try and answer your question, Eleanor, but I wanted to read out a section from the book, which I think really kind of demonstrates the power of what Danny's putting forward in this argument. So as that shattering occurs, even people who are in many ways very similar, more often take up very opposing positions. As we are pulled apart, we begin to become different people. And what we become then increasingly determines our views and beliefs. More and more, we begin to have misconceptions about each other and what is true. Um, Danny's talking about kind of at the uh, Ipsos Mori attitudes survey there. And I think that what really spoke to me there is the kind of, yeah, we've got the, we've got the practical aspects of the shattering so your schools your railways your transport general cost of living but actually our inability to then relate to each other and how that relating to each other becomes so pronounced that even those of us that are actually quite similar are then not able to kind of meet each other where we are and I think this that is one of the things that really rings true to me in all of Danny's work is the coupling the statistics of how much inequality like affects society more broadly, but actually how is that affecting our microsocial relations? And that is where that's where the scariest parts of this are, but that is also where the hope is as well. Um, so I, I think that kind of answers your question, Eleanor, but I just wanted to bring that in first and foremost, because I think it's a brilliant part of the book. Yeah, absolutely. And then when we think about the breakdown of the social fabric, I'm wondering what it's like for you, Danny, to sort of have these conversations with people of different generations who have radically different experiences of what might be termed the social contract, even though that phrase feels kind of increasingly unrecognisable. Oh, it's tricky. What I've discovered, I started talking about this book in public, and I've worked out I can't actually talk about it for more than 25 minutes directly on the book uh, without actually having the risk of crying uh, because some of the, uh, you know, you can sound very clinical about things. Like I'm quite good at that. Mm-hmm. But this morning early on, I was working on a paper on, on putrefied bodies and uh, decomposing bodies and the numbers of those of how they're, they're increasing. And I noticed this talking to people all the time. Last, time, last night I was in a, a Labour Party meeting in a local ward and it's good to go and meet people face to face. You have to do that. It, it helps. And what can I say? I'm in this party. There's a lot of well-meaningness. But the people at the ward meeting were very well off. Better well off than, say, the people in my Oxford college on average. And then there were other people I know in the party who were extremely upset about what's happening in the party. And this is a shattered Labour Party, you know, you see the shattering everywhere. People begin to get really resentful. It's the microaggressions because as the money runs out, the, the tempers fray. Uh, the old, I did a 100 talks when Brexit was on around the country, actually mostly in the south of England, in areas that voted leave, most of the leave voters in the south. What I discovered, most people who turn up to talks are old. Like young people don't turn up to talks in church halls. Most of them had voted leave. And they did it for their children and grandchildren because they couldn't see any other future for them. These elderly people mostly had bought their own homes because most people could. They'd had full employment. They'd managed to start a family young because you could then. Their lives had been good. But their grown-up children were mostly renting and they could see no future for their grandchildren. Of course, they'd been told and many of them had believed the stories that the reason why they couldn't get into hospitals with the immigrants and the reason why their 
children couldn't get into the state schools they wanted was the immigrants, and the reason why the housing lists were full was the immigrants. But some did begin to realise that wasn't true. The fact the only reason hospitals work is the immigrants, and the only reason you've got enough teachers is the immigrants, and the only reason anybody builds any housing is, is the immigrants. Um, but it was anger, upset, feeling of having lost something, and you have to be in the room. You have to feel it. If you're not, you can very quickly begin to hate other people because of what is happening. You can see them as the reason. How can they possibly vote in this way? How could they do that? Aren't they bigoted? Aren't they racist? And certainly there are lots and lots of racist people. But simply saying, there is enormous amounts of racism in the political party of which I'm a member, uh, which there is. The majority of black members of the Labour Party I know have been expelled or disbarred from standing. In fact, the only one I know who hasn't been is Doreen Lawrence, which shows how bad things are in the Labour Party. But shouting that out and, and just blaming others, the question is, how on earth did this come about? It's not that there never was racism in the Labour Party. It's always been a racist party and treated people who are black badly. But it's doing it much worse now than I have ever known it before, because I wasn't around in 1965 when Labour did its Racist Immigration Act. Um, now, some people hearing this will be very angry at me for saying it, but it is a sign of a shattering within a political party in meeting rooms in one little city, I live in Oxford, which the book Shattered begins with the story of the shattering of Oxford. And I start off by saying how hard it is to get a house, the sort of feelings people have, the angst, the anger. But I see it within Oxford Labour Party, This, as opposed to what it was like in the 70s and 80s, where there was some sense of unity. And although the political party then represented a broad sweep of people, a huge number of car workers were dominant, but the posh people were allowed in as well. Yeah, it, it isn't the feeling you have now. Um, and it's scary, as Chantal says, you can see how this goes towards fascism. You can, you can see, you can feel on the edge of how it could. But also, you can see how it goes towards hope because we've run out of money, because the, the experiment hasn't worked, uh, the experiment of give every individual as much freedom as possible and then watch it trickle down and benefit everybody else. You know, so we're at a cusp of a moment. And I think it's really important to try and be in the room with people Try and meet them face to face. Try and listen to them. And then you might still vehemently disagree with what they've done and their views, but at least you can see that they're human beings and try and get an idea about what is it that drove them to do some things which are terrible, such as expelling or barring from office all but one of my black friends in the Labour Party. And when it comes to finding a cure for this kind of uh, shattering, this kind of social fracturing that is is bound up with the kind of uh, literal and economic fracturing, obviously it's upon us to kind of collectively delve into a diagnosis if we're going to cure it. And what I'm wondering is sort of the face-off between the idea of racism and blaming immigration, et cetera, et cetera, all these old canals that we're very used to as a kind of distraction versus racism as a sort of structural problem or rather a, a structural tactic taken by the sort of same neoliberal forces that are causing this aforementioned fracturing, right? Like where should we be landing on the sort of the nexus of distraction versus fundamental tool of crafting a class? Chantal? Um, I think it's a really good question, Eleanor, and I'm really inspired and motivated by so many different organisers, scholar activists, people that have committed to knowledge production in a way that democratises just how embedded structural and interpersonal inequalities are, where they come from and how they manifest in contemporary society. However, I'm also inspired by other groups of people that are much more involved on a community level that 
that talk about the things that Danny's discussing in terms of being in front of people and having those conversations. And I draw to a series we had on Surviving Society recently, produced and hosted by Ez Chibo, and it was called The Role of Love in Social Justice Work. And one of the key points of that series, which I think comes through in Danny's book as well, is that it is not enough for us to be right anymore. So where we meet and how we go forward it's not about a politics of apathy. It's not about politics of hearts and minds, but it's a politics that has to be creative and innovative to bring people on a road to understanding that actually like marginalisation and inequality when it comes down to it is not good for the majority of people. So that is the, that's, that's the fact But the facts alone, which is something that we very much draw to on the left, like we love telling people what we know and what is to be true, but it's not enough anymore. We have to think beyond being right. And that also means us doing, and I don't think we've been great at doing that, um, this inner work on the left. Like, what are we bringing into these spaces? I know from even like the times of campaigning in the last few years, particularly during the Corbyn moment, like there is a lot of ego on our side of things. And that's not that's not always a bad thing. Like ego helps you get into rooms. Ego can help you be confident. Ego can help you take on people in debate. But there is also things about that which mean that we have blind spots. And what are those blind spots? And this isn't me saying that it's any of this should be understood as a hierarchy or it's left versus right and it's all equal. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that we have to do more in terms of how we are communicating. It's not enough to just say this, this and this. This is right. This is right. This is right. We have to do other things. I think... Chantal's really right there, and this is something we're learning. There's a lovely book, The Authors of the Spirit Level, Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson, that came out about 2.10, wrote a follow-up much, much later called The Inner Level, which wasn't much read, but was about the psychological effects of people living in a very unequal society and how it changes us. Now, we always think about how it changes people on the right. It makes them particularly brutal, nasty. It promotes up the psychopaths. But... People on the left and the progressive are affected too. And hence, these egotistical characters are more likely to rise up. You kind of get stars on the left on podcasts, and it's, you know, a bit more about me and not. Now, contrast that with a more equal country. Have a look at political punditry in somewhere like Finland or even Germany. And you are shocked about the modesty, the quietness, the listening to the others, the calmness, and it's incredibly effective. It drags all political parties across to the left. Whereas the antagonistic, I'm right, do it my way. Um, You know, here's my book and my manifesto. And by the way, chapter eight is, you know, you can turn straight to that and it'll tell you, do this, this, this and this. It's really ineffective. Turning this around is difficult. It happened before. It happened in the 1930s in Britain. Happened out of... Crisis, mass unemployment, losing the empire, the country was going downhill. People began to see each other as more normal. Those who had fought in the First World War found that easier because the men had been in shell holes together and did it. And they were young men, of course, still in the 30s. We had a conservative minister who was who was deeply involved in the creation of the National Health Service. We have had a eugenicist liberal head of an Oxford college who didn't particularly like women, William Beveridge, who crafted the 1942 report. There was a coming together of the elite and power of the unions, more strikes by far in the 20s than the 70s, enormous numbers, and crystallised in the Second World War, but people came to listen to each other, begin to understand each other far better and that's how we came down from a peak of inequality last time it happened and it's painful and it's difficult but there's simply we are right and you have to accept us really as part of how things have got this bad it doesn't work and why political parties are fractured within themselves that's something i think we, we can learn from the last few years you know even if you're you are absolutely certain you know of your views about 
how housing should be built. Just hammering them down to people isn't going to work. You've got to listen about their fears. You know, I will say we have enough bedrooms in London to house everybody. But the instant reaction of somebody living in London, and certainly the people I'll ever talk to in London, is you're coming for my two spare bedrooms in my three million pound house. You know, and I really need those two spare bedrooms because the way we used the bedrooms better in the past, when we divided the big houses up into flats, when we did so much that men we were so well housed by the 70s and 80s, it wasn't a sudden we're taking your bedrooms away. It was a realisation that you have to change things such that people don't own spare houses they don't use. People have got an incentive to move and fit into one that they do, and lots and lots of goodness. So we're a country full of elderly people, lonely, on their own, in three or four bed houses that they cannot afford the heat anymore. They absolutely cannot afford the heat with the cost of heating. And they can't even go up the stairs in many cases. But we don't work out how to build apartments near, really near where they live, because that's where all their friends are, that they'll want to move in to free up those houses. Right? We talk stupidly about building 300,000 houses still. We can't afford them. We can't afford HS2. We can't afford anything. We could only just afford 75 million for the BMW plant in Oxford by cutting 150 million from the social security budget on the same day so we didn't lose our biggest export order. Right? Things are absolutely desperate. And that is a point of huge opportunity because they're so desperate. There are no choices in many cases and enormous fear because it's very hard to, to agree to lose stuff when you feel you've got so little, even if you are in the upper middle class. You know, it's really hard to pay the school fees. You know, if I say, I'm afraid your, your income tax is going to have to go up by 5%, and you're borrowing from all the grandparents and everybody else to pay for that particular minor, not the kind of good private school you'd want, but the not very good one. You know, and he may see me smirk and go, oh, you know, you should just go to the state school. And at that point, I've lost you. This is the trickiest part of the shattering. You don't get out of the shattering simply by, by pulling back a curtain and going, Da-da, here's the statistics, now we just do this. Right? You, you've lost a generation. The anger, the hate that this has built up is enormous. You, could, you, know, you can only petrify half a country about very small boats and tiny numbers of people if you have managed to get the level of fear so very, very high that, that they can be uh, distracted by, by something that will never, ever affect them directly. So how does that um, operate, this sort of stripping away of a social safety net of housing, of healthcare, of schools, of transport, of all these kind of basic infrastructural provisions. It's a form of class warfare, arguably, but waged not in the workplace, but in our kind of basic collective ability to sort of exist day to day. And as shattered nations of details, just how consummate the effect of that is on people's experience of the everyday is kind of almost like hard to countenance in comparison with a genuine social safety net, which, you know, I have, generationally speaking, never experienced. So, Chantelle, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a bit about, you know, the relationship between what we would maybe now call austerity and uh, the formation of class. Like, what does what does class mean in that context? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, Eleanor, and it's actually one that I think about every day, because just speaking interpersonally, like the choices you make within your personal life very much map onto the capitalist formations of society, whether that's where you live, the relationships you have, the family you're in. The intensity of that is so prevalent. So like down to your your dating choices or your friendship groups, like things are so unequal now and there is so few opportunities for space quote-unquote ownership that it does feel very much like this that capitalism has invaded every aspect of our life and there'll be people listening to this now that are like Chantel that's always been the case and 
of course, like there, there is always versions of that within modern society or modern capitalist society. But I think right now, when you, and, and Danny does this very well in the book, let's just think back to sort of 1980 to now and tracking the, tracking particularly the intensification and the prioritisation of neoliberal society. So individual, hyper-individualism, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, myths of meritocracy being embedded into every part of our lives, whether it's family, work, school, education or higher education. And it's got to the point where we have a generation of people, when I speak to my, speak for myself, um, as millennials, where it's so hard to see where the opportunity or the future lies if you think of yourself just as an individual. And I think that, as Danny said, this is an opportunity for both hope and collectivism because this isn't, it's not looking good for the generations under the boomers. And look, I, there's a lot of boomers that are living in inequality. And obviously, Danny's addressed that in the book. But I think for younger generations, now is the time to think collectively. How do we redistribute resources or how do we get those with cash to release the cash? Whether it's institutions, whether it's private individuals, whether it's governments. At the end of the day, as Danny points out in all of his work, yes, money is tight, but there are oh, there is always cash to be extracted. And it's about getting creative in terms of how we get that cash. And I don't think it's everyone's role to find the find the ways to get that. I think that it can be, well, for some of us within the professional settings like academia, we can find ways to extract cash to bring it back into community spaces. But yeah, I think that I don't know if my answers, I don't know if I've given you a solid answer there, Eleanor, but I think that this is a very, as, as Danny says in the book, it's a very unique conjuncture and one that there isn't much in terms of opportunity that other generations have had to build stability, to build a life that is materially stable unless you are part of families where there is access to reserve cash and you can be given it. <laughs> Let's roll back a little bit and talk about the beverage report that, Danny, you mentioned a little while ago. It's, uh, it's very fundamental to the book. So it emerges in 1942, authored by William Beveridge, who, as you say, he's no dyed-in-the-wool socialist. He's, you know, he's an aristocrat. He's extracted from, you know, the ruling classes. And uh, it sets out this vision which... Nonetheless, it seems to be a program of like very, very thoroughgoing social reform. He's got his five giants, idleness, ignorance, disease, squalor and want. And you respond to that by uh, sort of updating it to five kind of new giants. And those are hunger, precarity, waste, exploitation and fear. So a couple of questions there. First of all, I'm really intrigued by uh, the way in which you outlined the beverage report as coming out of a moment of kind of cross-class political consensus where other people might have diagnosed that moment of a kind of social reform as coming out of kind of class antagonism. So, you know, what's the relationship there? And also just why these five? Okay. I don't think it was class antagonism that achieved it. Not that class antagonism is not useful. But the Bloomsbury set, the posh ones, got on board. John Maynard Keynes was involved in this, and another posh one. He had an incredibly posh friend called Oswald Fox, who was a banker, uh, who described to him that his great theory of economics was actually about changing the moral sentiment, by which he meant what the upper classes thought of others. Beveridge married Tawny's sister, She's the one somebody should write about, you know, the, the woman between Tawny and William who got them together and will have said the things that, that really, really matter. Though although Beveridge may have had particularly nasty views, he believed the middle class should have four children, white children for the good of the race. You know, out of that, you can get this. Now, we've had a class war. We have a class war but it's one in which both sides have lost. 
the poor have lost the most, which you see in increasing deaths, in people sleeping rough and so on, in children. I think there's more children not in schools in, in the UK than in the rest of Europe combined. I mean, we are the Texas of Europe, we are. But the winning side has largely lost as well. The 30% of people who used to vote for Margaret Thatcher, who won economically when she was in power, most of those have now seen their incomes fall in the last 10 years and their wealth really falling because housing prices are private pensions are not operating well. Douglas Carswell of UKIP, who won Brexit with his friend Nigel, he's gone to live in Mississippi because he can't. Now, you've got to ask, why would, why would a white man want to live in Mississippi? And it's worrying. And they're writing endless books, Rory Stewart, about, about just how bad a job they've done on it. So it's like a civil war in which the elite side kind of won, but what they won was a ruins that they created. And to get back to your question, the five evils are an old set of five evils. Two of them, beverage named after two children in the Dickens novel, want and ignorance were the name of those children. These problems have been with us for a very long time, but we reduced them massively, and it does affect our inner lives. You know, we go from a period where you can't even talk about Lady Chatterley's lover, mostly because it involves a lady and a gardener, not the other part of what it involves, to a point in the 1960s where a judge says, is this a book you would want your wife and servants to read? And he's just simply laughed out of his own court. Uh, the social mixing in the 60s and the 70s was unbelievable. We can measure it in terms of who could marry who, what they could do. Not quite so good if you were gay, but it was beginning to become possible to be out. And we were having acts of parliament that began to decriminalise certain things. It was the start of mixing in other ways that changed us. But we became lazy. Our left failed in the 60s and, and 70s. And we're now back to a kind of Lady Chatterley's lover time where you spend a fortune so your children will not mix with other children at school because the worst thing that could happen is that they get a boyfriend or a girlfriend from a lower social order. If you're in the top 10% and you're taking 40% of all income in Britain, what is the point of doing that? What is the point of scrabbling up and just holding on a little bit and creating that family that Chantelle talked about, which is its own welfare state, if you allow the immigrants into your family? people from the lower orders. You know, what on earth happens if your children fall in love with somebody else? They mustn't meet them. They must go to a top Russell Group university. You say, oh, because they'll get a better job, but there are other reasons why you go and your children live in an expensive university town and you rent the most expensive ensuite toilet in your life as a first year for £7,000, rather than simply doing what they do in the bulk of Europe and in Scotland, living at home and going to the nearest university. And the danger of living at home and going to the nearest university is you fall in love with somebody who's local. And in a really divided society, that is one of the worst possibilities. You know, we, we might worry about the mental health of our children, which is, which is appalling, and our grown-up and our grown-up children, but we are also behaving in ways where we're trying to curtail who they might mix with. When we have a look at like our most intimate lives, sometimes hard to really face up to the way in which those are fundamentally shaped by the forces around us that feel you know very much they're out of our control, and particularly when we're thinking about family. Oh, oh yeah, I could give you one example. The the one part of the Liz Trust budget which wasn't reversed was taking off the million pound cap on pensions, so that a hospital consultant, but particularly a banker, can build up a pension much, much bigger than a million pound in worth and not have to pay extra tax on that excess. Now, why would you, why would that matter so much to some people? Why do they need a higher pension? You know, this is a pension that most people could literally only dream of having. They need it because as, as pensioners, they will be helping supporting their grown-up children. These are children who've done very well in life. You know, children who they have helped buy a house which is now worth a million, a million and a half. And the grandchildren. And 
they can't share, they can't redistribute because of the, of the fear of not having what they see as an adequate social safety net. And hence, quietly, in a time where we've absolutely run out of money, we've taken the pension tax lid off. And it shows the quiet desperation, absolute desperation of people at the very top. This is talking about in the top half of the 1% of we, we can't secure, because we have ripped the society apart, we can't secure the safety of our children in the top half of the 1%. I, I talked at a leading public school recently where to parents, and one came up afterwards in tears to me quietly said he doesn't know we're homeless we've sold the house if we just about cover our debts we're still paying his fees he's 15 the boy we've done everything we can yeah so this is the shattering i see because i'm an oxford university professor right i get access to very well-off people and they are not happy really and they're frightened they're frightened about losing money so we called it a class war but they're not well organized. They're not getting on well with each other. The CEOs, if you look at the CEO's salaries, CEOs are turning over at about one a year. Some of them they last six months. They're taking four or five million in that year. They're just taking the money and running. And it's partly because they're scared. And you might say, what on earth do you need four million pounds a year for? Well, if you, if you want a bolt hole out of Britain, a country where you're worrying about what's going to happen to sterling and you're running a business so you know that sterling is dodgy and if sterling falls in value rapidly, the incredible increase in the price of food we're going to see. There is fear at the top. It is fear-driven, not confident anymore. Not like they were confident in the Thatcher years. Not like, not like they were even confident under Boris Johnson. That there is a fear of losing what they see as what little they have left their elite universities, their parks, their lifestyles, the one holiday to Italy in the summer a year, no longer a month, no longer that villa looking out over Luca, but something a little bit, you know, the skiing holiday. They've got to queue up with their passports now because the lower orders did the wrong thing and voted to leave. I mean, I'm, I'm for staying in the union, but it's ironic that the people in many ways most affected by Brexit are those who like to go skiing twice a year. Um, all want to retire to France. But so I, I'm going off. We shouldn't think of an us and them. There really is no unity at all in the 55 Tufton Street people at the top in, in that group. They, they've tried their experiment. They've got all their wishes. They got Brexit done. They made cut after cut after cut. They gave all their friends money during the pandemic. And as a result, they've run out of money and we as a country now have to pay the most of our money in Europe. Italy is doing better than we are. So it's pretty bleak, right? And I think something that Chantelle, you've talked about as well, the kind of unique Britishness or even Englishness of the contours of these problems and the contours of the way in which we're seeing fracturing, shattering occur. And I'm uh, wondering if there are kind of, I guess, opportunities to be gleaned from what we see around us, because, you know, in the Thatcher era, there was this great attempt to get certain amounts of the sort of middle classes to buy into Thatcherism with things like right to buy. But because of that massive asset stripping that happened over decades, looking around thinking, okay, what's the next right to buy, right? What have they got to offer other than the kind of relying on people doubling down into this bunker mentality? Chantal? I feel like it would be good to talk about something that's quite present in the the news right now, and that's the cancellation of HS2. And like, what does that tell us or what does that show us in terms of opportunity for solidarity, which I think does draw on some of the things that you're talking about, Eleanor, in terms of like the, the bunker mentality, but also the us and them mentality and sort of thinking about the north-south divide here now. I think that when I was watching the news this week and seeing Andy Burnham sort of shouting about how um, people in the north get treated as sec second-class citizens, I was like, absolutely true. This is terrible. It's awful. What can I do as an individual like to talk about this in 
a more kind of solidarity infused way. But also it's like they're constantly telling us what they think, what they think is a value, who they think is a value, what they think deserves investment. So the opportunity to me in terms of thinking about the shattering is like us collectively saying, yes, what what Andy Burnham is saying is correct. Where are the kind of, where are the other examples of how this is occurring on a day-to-day, on an annual basis to try and kind of get people to walk alongside of us in terms of recognising that actually those in power or that have been in power for nearly 13 years do not care about the working classes. They do not care about their quote-unquote ordinary people. They do not care about moving money from outside of London into the UK. They don't care. Well, they have a remarkably low level of caring. That's the way I put it. Yes. Some of them would like to go down in history. They care about themselves enormously, very narcissistic. Some would like to go down in history as being remembered as the person who levelled up because of their innate, clever brilliance and their policies. But they don't really care about the people they meet or, in the case of that particular minister, the people they came from before they were adopted, and even the family they were adopted into. So it's sad. You know, we have a, a ruling party, the Conservatives, who are not Conservative. They're aligned with the far right in Europe that they left the Conservative grouping in 2014. We have a Labour Party that stepped in to that breach and in many ways doesn't care as much as it once did about these places because it is so southern dominated and dominated by people who grew up in, in the privileged. More, you know, I'm very privileged, but much more privileged than me. But the cancelling of HS2 is desperation because we just cannot... Afford. And it's not just cancelled from Birmingham to Manchester. They've cancelled the bit from Euston to Old Oak Common, so it won't even connect them inside London. So you're left with this stubby little thing and the kind of hope of one day. But you, they should have stepped back right at the beginning and said, what was the purpose of a high-speed line? Now, their purpose always was this idea of, if you speed up the travel of businessmen, almost always men, by 30 minutes, there's a magical formula that shows you how much richer your country will get. And that's just completely wrong. We could have had a purpose for HS2. I was ridiculed when I suggested this by Chris Mullen, the MP who took the second lowest expenses ever after the best MP we have on the left, who took none. And the suggestion I, I made as a geographer very early on to give a purpose to HS2 is it should be the railway under which the new parliament building is built. If you really care about levelling up, you build a new parliament building just to the east of Birmingham on very cheap land, which is where the Y intersects of HS2. You sell off that crumbling Victorian fire risk in London because you're desperate to need to. MPs can get on the HS2 and others and civil servants if they need to in 30 minutes from Manchester, Leeds and London to that parliament. You can house your civil service to the east of Birmingham and vacate Whitehall because we need to sell that too because we've run out of money. That's a great idea. Sorry, Danny, well, this is this a is, great idea. When I suggested this, year, you know, it was really cool, but it would have been a reason for having HS2 because it's only about moving people fast. It's the only reason you need it. And you can only move a few people fast because you can't have that many trains on it. But my point is, something I suggested as kind of slightly fantasy a few years ago When you're now looking at the fact that we have run out of money and you look at that Victorian Parliament, it's so important to them because it's all about their egos. It has to be there. It has to be there. We are are an unbalanced country. There are only two other countries on the edge of Europe, which is similar to us in terms of how enormous their capital cities are and how small the rest is. Those two countries are Russia and Moscow. Russia is entirely dominated by Moscow, the former part of the empire of the USSR, and Turkey is entirely dominated by Istanbul, the former heart of the empire of the Ottoman Empire. And we are dominated by London, the heart of the biggest empire the world has ever known. And that parliament has to be there because of the egos of those MPs, because their life's ambition is to walk through the doors that only MPs are into that crumbling, horrible Victorian 
building which has to have a fire watch on it all the time where the repair bill is millions. We could sell that to Chinese entrepreneurs to create a seven-star hotel. Get it sold. You could sell it. You could sell the Queen Elizabeth Centre. You can sell Marsham Street. You could sell the Treasury. You can, uh, And this may sound ridiculous, but we have run out of money. So what do you do when you run out of money? You sell things. In the book, I have the example of Slough, which has had to sell all its libraries, all its houses, everything else. Of course, if I was writing it now, Birmingham has to sell everything between now and Christmas to pay the wages. The largest local authority in Europe is bankrupt. We have another 25 local authorities coming that are bankrupt. Oxford, my city, which has always done a surplus as a county, is now looking at a £4 million deficit and rising. Right? My city council employs fewer people than the geography department I work in and the chemistry department opposite. The, the, to run a whole city. Right? It, shattered is not an over-exaggeration. But shattered creates opportunities. Without becoming half bankrupt as a country, you would never think of actually moving the parliament out of London. It may never happen, but it becomes more and more likely simply to pay the bills to balance the books. Last year, we nationalised all further education colleges because we had to. On one day, ONS reclassified them as public. That's how we nationalised things. It's very polite. ONS reclassify them because most of their income is public. And the Secretary of State for Education sent them all the letters saying, you're now part of my department. No more borrowing, nothing. And by implication, nobody gets paid more than the Prime Minister. Didn't say that, but that's the key. And you've got loads of FE heads who are paying themselves more than the Prime Minister. We can't nationalise the housing associations, so we don't think we can, even though the country is filling up with black mould and they're usually inefficient because their debt would go on to the public debt, and then we really look bad for international lending. There's a kind of funny turnaround. If you remember Margaret Thatcher said, you know, the economy is like the budget of a housewife, and people always said, no, it isn't. You can print, you can do this. It's the complete opposite. But there does come a point when, if you rely on imports to feed yourselves and to get the bricks and to get the concrete to make things, then nationally we 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 do actually get to a point where we cannot print money and print our way out of this because we we no longer do enough that's of value to the rest of the world because we've destroyed our industries and services so much that whatever it is we do, it doesn't matter who wins the next election. Their options are massively curtailed. It, it matters a little bit. You know, it'd be nice with some nicer people. And there were some, there were some nice MPs out there. There really are. There were MPs who... Dawn Butler. Yeah, Dawn Butler. But, but a lot of Labour ones, every Friday they do their surgeries and they, they talk to people who have never had the heating on in the last two years, who are washing their children in cold water, who are lighting their rooms with candles, right? So I wouldn't have a disfaith in politics the large majority of our Labour MPs and quite a lot of the others spend their Fridays talking to people who have never been as poor before. The MPs are understandably angry. So who is this we who has run out of money? I'm curious about this because, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the composition of London, the composition of the UK economy as a whole, you know, is very much deeply rooted in its, its history as a metropolis of a global empire. And of course, one of those bits of heritage that's still lying around is non-DOM tax status. You know, that's an imperial hangover. And I guess you could forgive people for looking around and being like, well, you know, there are increasingly wealthy individuals, wealthy corporations. They may hate living here, but they have, you know, profited from asset stripping the country, you know, before we sell off parliament, which I'm not opposed to, you know, turn it into a, turn it into a giant ball pit for all I care. Brilliant. What can be done in terms of, you know, just on a basic level, taxation? Yeah, we brought in London status with the French Revolution to encourage the aristocrats to come over here. So we've had it for a long time. London status is where you claim you're not domiciled, you do not live in the UK. Now, you can live in the UK your whole time and still claim this. If you have some relative who lives in France, say your mum and you own a major newspaper, there are all kinds of ways in which you can... You can claim it, and it's essentially a tax dodge, but they're very well off. How do you get accepted as a non-dom? 
you write in private to Inland Revenue and they write back to you in private and it's a private arrangement between you and the Inland Revenue. Gentleman's agreement, a handshake. In the future utopia, when we're like Finland, Norway and Sweden and you can see everybody's tax records, you know, we are the opposite. We are the secretive tax country. How many non-doms are there in the UK? Uh, we don't know exactly because it's secret. Well, there we go. So that's, I guess, my question, right? We know that, like, especially we've seen this on turbo boosters throughout the pandemic. Like, the vast majority of people have seen their wage packets falling. They've seen the NHS crumbling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there has been a similar rise in the amount of wealth being funneled upwards. Yeah, it's it's not it's not similar. It's a smaller rise, which matters. So it's, it's not it's not similar. You know, most of, most of our wealth in the UK is held in the form of housing and property, and that value is how much you could sell it for. So it's not actually worth as much as you may may think. But certainly, there are concentrations of wealth. Whatever government gets in is going to have to wealth tax. I would not be surprised if Hunt and Sunak do not announce a wealth tax in the autumn, partly to, well, to try and try and win. You know, that's why they're going for the environment and saying we're going to roll back on the environment. They're trying to get votes to win. This is a party that's always wanted to win the Conservative Party. We're going to have to have a wealth tax anyway. Why not actually introduce it as a policy? Sunak could stand up and say, I will be the only member of this House paying it, because he's the only one wealthy enough at the, if you set it at the Spanish wealth tax level. Uh, he could also say, unlike the man opposite him, Sunak is highly qualified to know how to set a wealth tax because he spent his life working in a set of businesses that protected the money of the wealthy from such things. A wealth tax on the, on the very wealthiest individuals, where they can leave if they want to, but they often don't, uh, and also on our wealthiest institutions. So the endowments of the top 10 public schools and the endowments of the top 10 Oxford and Cambridge colleges come April every year when they submit their accounts. Those top 10 should be tied 10% of their endowment while the emergency continues. Right? If you really want to level up, if you want to level up, you look at where the sources of money left. Nundom status, you know, even... Keir Starmer says he'll remove, you know, it's the one pledge that hasn't gone. He'll remove none dumb, dumb status. You know, that has to go. But also you need to double the number of tax inspectors because each tax inspector makes 10 or 20 times more money than it costs to employ them. Uh, and at the moment, you simply write to HMRC and say, this is my money this year. And they say, oh, yeah, we believe you largely. They might investigate you. Thank you very much. Um, we need to do that much more seriously. We, we don't have to worry about the extremely rich families who've been attracted to live here because of, you know, that the elite schools in London have to worry about them. The elite private schools of London may well go bankrupt if we don't allow the non-doms not to pay tax. But those school buildings will still be there and when your school roofs are falling down because of the concrete, we have enormous numbers of school buildings that are underused, but they're being used by the children of people who don't pay tax. Yeah, it is solvable without more money. So, Chantal, what would you say um, we should do in terms of understanding how this kind of um, this abandonment, this kind of organised abandonment, this shattering is experienced differently in different regions and also in different nations of the UK. And I guess I'm curious about the links to sort of deindustrialization and how that, you know, links into the, the global reorganisation of our economy that we've seen, you know, since the 1970s. I think simply put, and it comes back to what we were saying earlier in this podcast, I think we need to draw on our familiarities and similarities, particularly when we're thinking about the geographies of inequality, like the state or those in power, particularly during election times, are very much able to mobilise ideas and realities of a north-south divide and paint a picture of the ordinary working or working voter. We have to recapture narratives, imaginations of who is more deserving and actually make that a much more universal understanding of who people are, 
um, how geographies of inequalities are similar in different areas, but with people that are ethnically different, for example, we have to really look at this kind of multi-ethnic, multi-class solidarities. I'll give an example, like let's look at the poverty levels in Tower Hamlets and also look at the poverty levels in Bradford or the poverty levels in parts of like Cornwall. Like how do we recapture things that are similar, particularly in terms of how we materially experience social life and really actually shatter what the powerful, how the powerful perpetuate an idea of the most deserving person. And that most deserving person or most deserving family actually tend to be families which the government have cut from constantly, particularly in a very intense way um, over the past 13 years. So we really need to recapture what it means to be a person here living in the UK and draw on our similarities. I'd love to know more actually about what that framework of like the deserving poor is a kind of shadow of like the Victorian poor laws and, you know, laws before that and what that's doing like ideologically in helping this project of dismantling. I'm struck by the fact that, you know, um, as Danny was talking talking about, you know, the 1970s was in, in many ways the kind of apex of social welfare state in the UK. But of course, it's ushered in in 1968, I believe, by an immigration act that is, you know, starts off that process of divide. Uh, uh, can we, um, uh, Chantal, maybe? Um, yeah, I think in more recent years, like we've seen the deserving being imagined as someone that is, well, someone that's positioned as a quote unquote nativist or someone that is natively from Britain. And as we know, that is perpetuating a myth around who the working class actually is. When we know the working class has always been a multi-ethnic group of people, whether we're thinking on a local or global scale. But what the UK is able to do very well and what the Tory party are able to do very well, much better than the Labour Party, even though the Labour Party would like to try their hand at it, is perpetuating ideas of white nationalism, racism as vote winners. And actually, when the Labour Party dabble in these ideas of the most deserving, they're doing it in a way that's quite flimsy. And actually, the Tories have shown us, particularly over the last few years, that they're willing to go full throttle when it comes to the ideas of the deserving and undeserving. You can see how they're doing this with migration. You can see how they're doing this with ideas, well, the the dismantling of the, of the welfare state as well. You're seeing like these real, very familiar and similar ideas of what the working class is doing in their everyday life, which kind of, I'm kind of going to con- contradict myself slightly because I do think that they've they very much mobilise the ideas around whiteness and nativism to, a, to, to as much as they can, really. And now you're kind of seeing a return to the benefit scrounger, a return to actually, like, we want you all to work as much as possible type narrative. So I, I think I'm, yeah. I'm kind of saying two things here. I think that they're always doing their racism, but actually that's only, that's got them to a certain point now. And you're now seeing a kind of more universalised stigmatisation of the working classes in all of its entirety. Um, I think that's kind of answering your question. I know Danny will probably be able to add more, but it's, it's it's very intentional, it's very purposeful what they're doing. And I think that we need to really recapture what it means to be a person in this country and not let them use these divide and rule tactics. I'd love for you to weigh in on this, Danny, as well. And I'm also wondering about, so you say that it's a failing state, perhaps, or there are failures, but it's not, we're not living in a failed state, which makes me wonder uh, about what your articulation is about, like, what the state is for. Like, how do we know when the state is failed? And what does that tell us about what the state you know, is and what it's supposed to do? I mean, we'll be told when the state has failed that there is a failing state index that's done internationally. Um and of course, already, mainland European countries are looking at us with pity. Uh, a court in Germany refused to send a prisoner to Britain because our prisons are substandard. So it's where somewhere most failed states in the world are very, very poor. Um, we haven't had a rich 
state fail post-war. But the poorest fifth of people in Britain are now poorer than the majority of the poorest fifth on the periphery of Eastern Europe. Only five Eastern European countries have a worse neonatal mortality rate than us. Uh, we, we have shot down the ranks faster than any other country in Europe. And we are still moving downwards at the same speed. And now, it is some way away from failing, because you, you associate failing with Somalia and Sudan, and, you know, so the language doesn't work. But in terms of doing the worst out of Europe, we are absolutely uh, there. And that is why they are so desperate to carry on finding something else to blame and, and, and to stoke up the racism and to work on it. And, of course, they've got the book that they developed in the 70s and 80s that this is how you get people to be racist. You know, they, they, they've written the manual of the buttons to push to do it. But they've run out of rope because the telling everybody to work has now extended to telling all the middle-class students that they need to be in work as well. You know, everybody needs to work, 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 work at jobs that pay increasingly poorly. And at the same time, when you survey people, you find that individually they are becoming more and more socially progressive, particularly by age. The young are, are more socially progressive than poor racism. The only thing that the young are not progressive on is economic inequality because the half of the young who go to university really believe that they should be paid more because they've gone there, because they've been told that. But other than not being progressive on economic inequality, the young are, are increasingly socially progressive on other issues, and this grates. But Chantal's right. The left have tried and still try to play the racist game, thinking it'll pick up votes. You know, and yeah, you can win Selby. But you're not going to win Uxbridge. You're not going to win loads of other areas if you do this. Young simply will not walk out and vote for you. But like I say, I really doesn't, don't think it matters. We could have a government of national unity. There isn't that much difference between the policies of the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. They've both got no money. In fact, with a, a government of national unity, you wouldn't have any democracy, as you don't have in Birmingham now. It doesn't matter who you vote for in Birmingham. Commissioners now run it. So you lose democracy, but at least they could just get on and do the things that have to be done. The danger is that's how fascism also happens when they just get on and get the things that have to be done. So it would be much better if this was done and safer democratically. If the progressive political parties, the Greens, Labour, and I grudgingly say Liberals, were to actually become more progressive, move towards their counterparts in, in the mainland Europe, if Labour was to become like the Conservatives in Germany, that would be a huge step forward. The Conservatives in Germany are far more progressive. Public spending is higher than even Corbyn promised. The attitudes to refugees and migrants is far more open. You know, it's asking a lot to ask the British Labour Party to become as pro progressive and radical as Conservatives in Germany. But that's where we are. That's how shattered we are. That, that we need to realise it's this bad. And asking, I'm not asking for our Labour Party to become like the Social Democrats in Germany. I'm asking for our Labour Party to become like the Conservatives and for our Green Party to also realise that it is the poshest Green Party in Europe, the least pragmatic, because it, apart from Scotland, it hasn't been in power. Being against the building of council houses because you want to save the carbon is just insulting. All our politics is very, very bad. We do not have a great political party that we can follow because it's all moved to the right. The contrast is Finland, where it all moved to the left. And I can sit with a conservative mayor in the town. And apart from the fact that the conservative mayor in the town rather likes the fact that the young people get conscripted and learn how to shoot, everything else is extremely progressive about a conservative's attitude. In Finland, because the soul of the country has been changed. And the sad thing is, our soul was changed the other way. And Margaret Thatcher promised to do it, change the heart and the soul. And she won. She did. And this is what you get. Final thoughts, Chantelle? How do we do another soul reformation? I think we're doing it. 
I think as much as we've spoken about some really challenging aspects of society, both structurally and micro-socially, I think there are really important and inspiring people, work, initiatives occurring right now. I think even the fact of us being on this call now, recording this podcast, like we're creating knowledge. We're creating knowledge in ways that lifts consciousness, that helps people to understand why things are the way they are. I think that knowledge production itself is a very, very small aspect of creating material change, but it is an aspect. So I think that drawing on the hope in the work that people are committed to do. And I think that what comes across in a lot of Danny's writing and work is the fact that most people don't want people to struggle, actually. Like most people have good in them. And yeah, what can we do to draw that out within our work life, within our home lives? But also like who are the people that are putting pressure on those that have power, those that have access resources, how are we looking after those people as well? And yeah, I think we just have to keep powering through. And I think a lot of a lot of people are doing that. It's just really important to, I think, for me to end on that note. And that's lucky because that is unfortunately where we have to end it. It's been such a pleasure talking to you both. Chantelle, Danny, thank you so much for coming on and chatting to us. Thank you for listening. That was our episode. We heard from Chantelle Lewis and Danny Dawling about floundering governments and divide and rule strategies on migration. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or a review. It really helps us out. Next episode, we'll be talking love, money, sex and death, queer resistance and the art of autobiography with Mackenzie Walk and Toshio Marinek. Join us then. You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.